have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? New life in Christ, the pleasure of serving Him, as we, as we were able to do yesterday, and the rain has come today rather than yesterday, so that's something to be thankful for. I'm so grateful for um, the way that everybody so willingly served yesterday. We got to see God's faithfulness alive in our midst. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And good news that we saw 815 people come through here, our most successful Fall Fest to date in terms of numbers. Now, there's other good news that I'd like to share uh, about this week, because I think as many of you know, there was the CareNet Banquet this past week. And CareNet is an organization that fights to save the lives of the unborn. Well, at their banquet this year, they raised $161,000 this year, which is 13000 more than last year. So praise God for that. It was a beautiful event, and I am delighted that all that money is now going to be channeled into saving lives and mending families. Well, getting into today's message, we're in 1 Peter chapter 5 today, chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, so you can open up your Bibles. And as you do, a few words about our world, because from our world, we hear that from conception, you are only valuable if you are wanted. We hear that The way you are born is not the way that you are, and what you are is nothing more than a highly evolved animal. We hear that sex does not need marriage, and marriage is only as good as your happiness. We hear that Christians are hateful, and that God is whatever you want Him to be, and we hear that freedom is not having anyone tell you what to do or what to think. So what you're hearing is a world that has rejected its own maker, a world Drunk on its own arrogance. Friedrich Nietzsche imagined this crazed prophet running through the streets, shouting to people what their arrogance has accomplished. And so I want to read to you this parable that he has written with piercing brilliance. Make no mistake, Nietzsche was brilliant. And through this parable, the madman speaks Where is God gone? He called out. I mean to tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are his murderers. But how have we done it? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the whole horizon? What did we do when we loosened this earth from its sun? Whither does it now move? Whither do we move? Away from all suns? Do we not dash on unceasingly, backwards, sideways, forwards, in all directions? Is there still an above and below? Do we not stray as through infinite nothingness? Does not empty space breathe upon us? Has it not become colder? Does not night come on continually, darker and darker? Shall we not have to light lanterns in the morning? Do we not hear the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell the divine putrefaction? For even gods putrefy. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. 
How shall we console ourselves, the most murderous of all murderers? The holiest and the mightiest that the world has so far possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe the blood from us? With what water could we cleanse ourselves? What festal, festival of atonement? What sacred games shall we have not to devise? Is not the magnitude of this deed too great for us? Shall we ourselves not have to become gods merely to seem worthy of it? Though I do not agree with Nietzsche, with his philosophies, I cannot help but see that like some godless prophet, he was able to look more than a hundred years into the future and see us with astonishing clarity. He knew exactly what would happen when the creatures reject their creator. They would have to become worthy of the throne made vacant. They would have to become gods themselves. But what Nietzsche did not understand is that God does live. And God cannot be moved. It is only within the drunken delusions of arrogance that anyone thinks they can remove God from their lives, let alone from reality. God's eternal throne feels no tremor, even as the world, teeming with fools, rages against him. Indeed, God is not moved. It is the arrogant who are shaken. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide spoil with the proud. God loves the lowly in spirit, the contrite, the humble, the submissive. Peter knows that God's chosen people, the elect, exiles us. We are against the current. We fight against the current, the current of arrogance that plunges into the abyss. He knows that it is hard for us to stand fast in this current, and it is impossible to do it alone, and so we must link arms one with another. We must stand behind the rock, the one who breaks the current and makes for stiller waters. And all of that takes humility. Humility. We need humility in our hostile world lest we be swept away by the current with all the others. So what I want to do today from our passage is answer the question, what is biblical humility? What does it look like? And then what is the relationship between humility and anxiety? So that's what we're going to see today. Let's read our passage. I'm going to back up all the way to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, 
Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, what precious words those are. You care for us. You care for us. We have such a hard time understanding that. But I pray today we would see it a little more clearly and that it would help to ease our anxieties that so plague us. Lord, help us to be a humble people. You know we are prone to be independent, to to do things ourselves and ultimately to make gods out of ourselves. Father, humble us. We so need you. We depend on you. You are everything. We can give to ourselves nothing that lasts. Help us, Father. Speak to us this morning. Nourish our souls through your word, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. So in this letter to the elect exiles of the church, Peter is very concerned with how we should live in relationship to the institutions of man. So we've been seeing this for some time now. If this world is not our home because we're exiles, then how do we relate to the government? If our treasures are in heaven, then what is our incentive to be good employees? What is marriage supposed to look like? And what about the church? How do we function in these places? And so Peter is spent some time writing about these, and we have spent some time examining each one. And here in chapter 5, he returns again to the institution of the church, first instructing the elders, we saw that last week, and now this week, shifting that focus to the rest of the church. And we saw that focus shift right there in verse 5, the beginning of verse 5. Look at that. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So Peter pivoted, was addressing the elders, now he writes to those who are younger. So who are those who are younger? Who exactly is that demographic? It's a rather broad category, but I think it's safe to say that Peter is talking to teenagers, to young adults, to 20-somethings. These probably are all included in those who are younger. And when we read that command, be subject be subject to the elders, we must understand that Peter is commanding these younger Christians to humbly submit to the elders. But notice there's a continuation of thought. That likewise, right at the beginning of verse 5, is indicating there's a thought that's continuing, a plumb line that runs through both parts. So Peter has shown us the Christ-like ways in which the elders are supposed to be shepherding the local church. They are to lead and they are to oversee eagerly and humbly and faithfully with all that they are, these elders. They are to follow Christ, the chief shepherd. Because Jesus himself eagerly and humbly and faithfully loved his flock and shepherded his flock. So much so that he laid down his life for us. And so in the same way, the elders are to shepherd their flock. Okay, so follow the logic. Now, as the elders exercise Christ-like leadership, younger Christians are to exercise Christ-like submission. 
In chapter 2, Peter went into the depths of Christ's humble submission to the Father's will. And reflections of Christ's submission and humility before the Father are reflected all throughout this epistle. Everywhere we see it. So in a similar way, younger Christians are to submit to the local church's spiritual fathers, the elders. As a spiritual father, Paul urges a similar thing in the, book of, in the letter of Thessalonians. Paul writes, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So elders function a little bit like spiritual fathers of the local church. And younger people are supposed to submit themselves, subject themselves to these spiritual fathers to, so that they can walk in a manner worthy of God, like Paul wrote. Just as Christ submits himself to the Father. And in Christ submitting himself to the Father, he proves himself to be infinitely worthy. So before Jesus was given the throne, he was given the cross. Before he was given glory, he was given submission. The pattern is true for us. Our youth are to learn humble submission so that in their day of leadership, they will know how to lead humbly. They know how to shepherd faithfully. So what exactly does it look like for a younger Christian to submit themselves, to subject themselves to the elders? It means they choose to respect the elders. They give their words weight. They choose to see the elders in the best of lights, even though that might not immediately be clear. They are eager to support the leadership and the direction of the elders. They're praying for their elders. They follow the elders as the elders follow Christ, as Christ followed His Father. But there's an exception, one exception, only one exception, young people. If your elders are leading you to sin, you do not follow them. So there's a, a different question, a, a question that might have popped into your mind as we, we read that, as we're studying this. Isn't everyone in the church supposed to submit to the elders in the same way? Don't we see Paul talking about that and the writer of Hebrews talking about that? Yep. That's the simple answer. <laughs> Why is Peter just addressing the young believers? I don't know for sure because he doesn't tell us exactly, but I have an idea. Isn't there a group of people within the church that's most prone to independent thinking and to rebellious attitudes? Isn't it those who are young? Rebellious youth, that is not a product of our times. They are the ones that need a strong reminder, maybe the strongest reminder, not to give in to these inclinations, these proud inclinations, but to follow Christ in submissiveness, particularly by subjecting themselves to the elders. But of course, the implication is for the whole church. Peter's command is not just for the young, because if those who are young are supposed to subject themselves to the elders, does it not follow that everybody else in the church is to likewise submit themselves to the elders? And of course it does. 
If the most independent, rebellious in the church are supposed to submit to the elders, then so also should everyone else in the church. The elders have a responsibility to shepherd and oversee faithfully just as Christ leads and oversees. You are responsible, church, to submit humbly. Which means trying not to take charge, not bucking against their directives, not grumbling and gossiping, but following your elders in such a way that it is a joy for them to lead you, a delight for them to shepherd you. Excuse me, like the writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Isn't it better to have happy leaders? I think so. How much better for the elders to be filled with joy than for their shepherding to be a chore over you? And you can help facilitate that. And as you do, as you support them, as you respect them, as you honor them, as you come beside them, they will be joyfully following Christ as they are leading you. And that will only help to cultivate your joy and your happiness. So submit to the elders and trust God for their leadership. And remember, they will have to answer to God. So trust their leadership to God. And then very directly, Peter pivots again, and he addresses this time directly everyone in the church, elders and new believers, young and old, men and women. We see that in verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. All of you, Peter writes. Everyone in the church is to clothe themselves in humility. So take humility and put it on. The, the Greek verb there literally means tie it on. Tie it on to yourself. So once more we see that this is following Christ because in humility, Jesus picks up a towel and he ties it around his waist. And he takes a basin. And he gets on his bended knee. Lifts the street filthy feet of the disciples. And he begins to wash them. And he starts with Peter. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. On his knees, eagerly, humbly, making himself the lowest of servants. In the same way, tie on humility. In the same way, we are to help wash the dirt from each other's lives. In humility, we are to serve one another, even if our hands get dirty. In humility, we are to honor each other, even at the expense of people's own opinions about you. Pride, arrogance, that would give no room for anybody to look better than me, look better than you. Arrogance would drive you to, to anxiety, to depression, to insecurity if someone appears better than you in some way. But humility is eager to celebrate what is good in another person and to help them increase rather than me increase, to help them increase 
Like Paul writes to the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility conduct others as more significant than yourselves. Can you believe that? More significant than you? Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See that? A humble mind is a gift to you from Jesus. It's yours now. Think with it. This is the humility we are to exhibit towards one another. A humility that generously gives and eagerly honors and serves, even if it's at a cost to ourselves, which is what Christ perfectly demonstrates and modeled for us. And then verse 5 ends with, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's quoting Solomon. In Proverbs 3.34 we read, Toward the scorner he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Notice how the verbs in Peter's quote are all in the present tense. Poses the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So to be painfully precise, that could also read, God continually opposes the proud and continually gives grace to the humble. Those who are arrogant in heart, who have wanted a life without God, who have tried to become gods of their own, the Almighty is continually set against them. But for the humble, the infinite one endlessly supplies grace. What is grace? It's not a thing and it's not an idea. It's power. Grace is power. The power to live righteously. Grace is the power to please God. Grace is the power to humbly consider others as more significant than yourself. Grace is the power that makes a heart of love beat. And grace is not something that you can make for yourself. It is all from God. It is His generosity. It is His righteousness. It is His wisdom. It is His love that comes electric into our hearts. And the heart receives it by faith. You know, all week there's been this charge of gracious humility around this church, around Emmanuel. People giving up their time and working to the point of exhaustion. I've seen that in my own house. People deferring to others' ideas with cheerful attitudes. People eager to do tasks that nobody's going to recognize, or very few. People humbly serving this community, knowing that we will probably not see these people ever again. It is the grace of God at work in our midst, electric and powerful, and praise God who gives such grace and such humility. But there is something that should scare us, that should cause us to be on guard because there is a snake in the grass and he is a liar. And we need to know where this danger is and how to find it. As I've mentioned, all these things I've mentioned, the, the serving, the honoring, the submissiveness, all of it can be twisted 
corrupted into self-righteousness. The motivation to serve, other, to serve others might be to win their approval. You could honor someone else so that they in turn will honor you. You might submit to authorities to win their favor. And what appears to be Christ-like humility is really just a means to self-justify. And that's why Jesus was so angry with the Pharisees. You realize? They wore this thin veil of humility, but on the inside they were filled with self-righteousness. It's just arrogance masquerading as humility. It can appear so good, so authentic, so delicious. But that ancient serpent is coiled there to steal away life. So we're given a grace. In verse 6 is a knife that divides true and false humility. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. That verse shows us the true nature of humility. The, the root of a lowly spirit is visible there. Humility, in its truest biblical sense, is not the absence of pride. It is not the awareness of your limitations. Biblical humility is an attitude before God. So an arrogant person trusts in themselves. A humble person trusts in God. Humility is dependency on God. Humility recognizes that every need you have is found in Christ. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Humility runs to the almighty refuge with empty hands and seeks for Christ to fill them. Humility runs to God with a soul that is starving. And God has something to say to them. To the humble, God cries out, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself with rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Only to the humble are those sweet words. In biblical humility, there is no room for pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. There is only running to the Almighty with your empty hands and your needy heart and saying, feed me, fill me, satisfy me, help me. That's what it means in verse 6, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Because his mighty hand is there to supply, ready to meet the needs of everyone who seeks him. Water for the thirsty, bread for the hungry, all given generously without price. And now perhaps you can begin to see this link that exists between humility and anxiety. Look at verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So what is anxiety but, but worry and apprehension and unease? 
uncertainty that your surroundings are not going to work out in the way that you want them to work out or that you're not going to feel affirmed by the people that you're with. Anxiety is fearing what you cannot control. It's a fear that can even sometimes lead you into panic. Ultimately, anxiety is arrogance. That's been twisted into a form of fear. Only pride would drive a person to think that they can control the world around them. Only pride thinks that everyone should like them. And only pride would drive a person to anxiety when these things are uncertain. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Because God is so gentle with us. With us who are riddled with pride. He knows that we live in this world of chaos and there's so little that we can do to control our surroundings. He knows that we are anxious creatures. He knows we have needs. And he knows that we are prone to be anxious about meeting those needs. And so God does not say, just stop it. Instead, he says, give me, give me your anxieties. Give me your cares. The most powerful motivation that we find is at the very end of verse 7 in 1 Peter. You don't need to turn there now, but God cares for you. God cares for you. And in Matthew chapter 6, verses 26 through 33, we hear these words from, from Jesus. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor, nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the unbelievers seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God cares for you, little flock. He sees the needs of your body, and he cares for them. He sees your need for love, and he loves you. Give your heavenly Father all your worries and trust Him. Christ was stripped of His clothing, of His comfort. His dignity was taken from Him as He was hanging cursed on that cross. And He could have called down a whole legion of angels to rescue Him and destroy all of these unbelievers. But he humbly hung there 
submitting to his father and trusting him. And how good was that plan? After Jesus' humiliation, he is exalted to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns now in glorious humility and victory and power. Jesus was humiliated so that you could stand confidently before God. Not because of anything that you did, so you have no reason to boast, but because of what he did. And so now you can humbly stand before Almighty God confidently knowing that He loves you. He loves you and He cares for you. The the Father graciously supplies all things for you. So trust Him with every anxiety. Trust Him with your significance. Because at the proper time, God will give you praise and glory and honor. So writes Peter in chapter 1, verse 7. Ask God to give you your daily bread, to forgive you, to lead you not into temptation, and he will supply your physical needs so that you can honor him. A humble person is a needy person. A humble person is okay with their neediness. And so they run to the Father because they know their Father, that He gives good gifts, that He loves them and cares for them, that His ear is always there, inclined towards them, that He has the power of grace surging towards them at all times. And so when you ask, He gives. Jesus said, you ask not, or you have not because you ask not. He provides for your physical needs, and he provides for your spiritual needs. He gave you his son so that you could stand righteous, uncondemned before him. He gives you his word to nourish you, so feast upon it. He gives you the elders to help guide you, so submit to them. And above all of these, or maybe not above the first one, He gives you the Holy Spirit. So be sure to walk in Him. Do you know what the humble have in common? One thing that the humble have in common, well, one of the things that the humble have in common, they are a people of prayer. The humble are a people of prayer because they understand that everything comes from God and they are desperate, desperate for His provision. So they go to him. They go to him for their daily bread and for their forgiveness and that heaven would touch earth. They go to him. The humble are a people on their knees. And so I ask you, are you a person of prayer? How God's love abounds towards those who depend on him. So my brothers and sisters, cast all your anxieties upon your heavenly Father because his shoulders are broad. And his hands are open. You can trust him because he cares for you. This much the humble understand. Let's pray. We thank you for your mighty hand. That it doesn't, it's not lifted above us to come down on us.
but it's open before us to strengthen us and support us, to bring us one day into glory. Thank you, Father, for these great gifts that you give us, for the grace that you have given to us through Jesus Christ. We praise you for it. Lord, help us to be a people that are humble, that continually see our need. And though self-righteousness will rise again and again in all of our hearts, Lord, humble us once more. We are needy. And where have we to go except you? You are our rock and our refuge, our help, our ever-present help in a time of need. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today being the first day of the month, the first Sunday of the month is Communion Sunday for us.